Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. So today what I want to do is I want to take a look at the fourth week, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is something that's so simple. It's something that children recite and memorize. You probably learned it back when you were 8, 9, 10 years old uh, in Sunday school. It, it's something that we pray all the time. And sometimes we forget when we recite things what the words actually mean. So I'm going to take you through today, through the Lord's Prayer, all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll see that there are seven particular petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And each one, when you take them separately, has an impact on your life. Now, can they be dangerous? Of course. Anytime we start recognizing who God truly is and the calling that He has on our lives, okay, it puts us in a situation that's a little uncomfortable from the day-to-day -day business, the day-to-day -day things of what we normally do. But again, the prayer contains seven different petitions. Seven is actually a very favorite number for Matthew, okay? The Bible often talks about seven, and Matthew loves the number seven. For example, there are seven parables of the kingdom in Matthew. Uh, forgiveness, Jesus says, is to be told not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then remember, Jesus, um, at the end, he's talking, uh, he talks about alas, alas, Jerusalem. He has seven alasses, seven alasses. And there's seven petitions in this, in this Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is not to be uh, something that's just for uh, vocal um, uh, resuscitation. It's not to be just kind of off of my lips and I just kind of go through it. It's actually a prayer. The Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus was asked about prayer and he taught them a model prayer which means it doesn't have to always be like this, but this is a, a model for the way that we should do things. Um, so let's take a look at the Lord's Prayer, and when we get to the actual prayer, it'll come up on the screen. It's already there. And you can actually pray this, pray this with me. But let me start in Matthew 6, a little bit earlier than this. It says this. It says, Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners and the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have already received their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need to pray of before you even ask them. In this manner, therefore, pray. And if you'd like to, why don't you pray with me? It's our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I mentioned, there are actually seven different petitions in this prayer. And we'll kind of go through them. Each line of the Lord's Prayer is designed to invite God into our lives. That's what prayer does. Prayer connects us with God. 
and invites God into our lives and allows us to fellowship with Him. We'll take each one individually and see actually how it will speak to us, break our heart, and make us bold. As most of us learned these prayers when we were children, we likely haven't had the opportunity to really examine what we're actually praying. The Lord's Prayer from some is something that we often just recite. However, in the series called Dangerous Prayers, we found that even a simple prayer, a simple prayer like, Lord, speak to me, can actually have a tremendous impact if you really understand what you're asking God. You'll see that there's an awesome opportunity in these prayers to not only connect with God, that's a vertical relationship, but also most of these prayers also have a horizontal relationship as well. It's our relationships with the people around us, both believers and what I call not non-believers, but pre-believers, okay? We have believers and pre-believers, okay? Because they just need to understand the goodness of God to become a believer. That's the horizontal relationship. If you pray rather than receive, recite the Lord's Prayer, um, you'll be challenged. You'll be challenged in a, in a mighty way. So let's go through each one of these petitions, these, these precious lines in the Lord's Prayer one by one. The first one is just two words, our Father, okay? Just our Father. There's nothing more common among us than to think of God as our Father. Almost every single prayer that we're praying, we call God our Father. That's, that's part of our repetition. When we pray God, we say, Oh, Father, please bless us. Oh, Father, please provide that need. Oh, Father, do this. And we pray our Father often. So for us, it's a, just a beginning of the way we, prayer. we pray. But we have to understand that from the Jewish perspective, this was uncommon. In fact, if you take a look at all of the prayers of antiquity, if you go through the entire Bible, God is referred to as Father rarely, rarely. Moses calls God the Father at one point in the book of Exodus, but it's only one time. We don't see God as referenced as the Father. In fact, the Jewish people were very reserved in even naming the name of God. In fact, you're probably familiar with this, this slide. This is the, what's called the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton, okay? And remember, Hebrew reads right to left, right to left. So here's the, the four-letter Hebrew word for God, and it's only consonants, okay? It's Yud, He, Ve, and He. Those are the four letters, or you could look at it as Y, H, W, and H. Now, often, we would expand that to Yahweh, Yahweh. This, depending on the vowels that you use, it could be Jehovah. But wouldn't you know that by the time that Jesus was around, the Jewish people rarely mentioned the name Jehovah. They rarely mentioned the name Yahweh. They had other names for him instead. They would use all different kinds of words. For example, they would say um, Adonai. Okay, Adonai. In fact, in the Bible, often this, this tetragrammaton is, is, is actually translated as Adonai. Uh, which is my Lord. Or the Jewish people in prayers would say Hashem, Hashem. And Hashem is the name. It's just the name of God. So rather than saying the name of God, they would say Hashem, the name, the name itself. Or this is the one I like because I just love how it says. It's Hakadash Barakhu. Hakadash Barakhu. Do you want to say that with me? Try it. Hakadash Barakhu. Okay? And that means, that translated as the Holy One, blessed is He. Hakadash Barakhu. And that's about as much Hebrew as I know. 
two years in seminary, that's all I got, guys, okay? <laughs> well, we could take the next 24 hours to go over the ways the names of God were used um, at the time of Jesus and the Pharisees. When Jesus is told, when, when, when the disciples ask Jesus to pray, and he starts by saying, our Father, this completely changes the relationship for the Jews to be able to think of God as not something that's so far off and so holy that they can't even mention his name, to be able to call him their father. See, Jesus was actually the first rabbi in the first century that actually called God his father. This is a radical departure from tradition. Um, every recorded prayer that we have from the lips of Jesus says, uh, save one, he calls God father. And in fact, it's th for this very reason that the Jews started decided that they were going to do away with Jesus. Jesus was just too radical for them, okay? They were expecting the Messiah, but not someone that was going to change their culture and introduce this idea that God was a father, somebody that you could speak to, somebody that you could have fellowship with, somebody that loved you for who you were, and that you could love him as a father as well. To have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe was radical. And every time we pray this prayer, when we say, Our Father, that's what we're doing. It's, we're entering into a very radical relationship. Um, when Jesus says, uh, pray, Our Father, He's giving us the right and the privilege to come into the presence and the majesty of God and address Him as Father because indeed He is our Father. He created us in His image. He's adopted us into His family and made us co-heirs with His only begotten Son. That's what Romans 8.13 says. That He's a adopted us and brought us into his family. With God as our father, we become sons and daughters. This is what Hebrews 12 verses 5 through 7 says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Aha! It's dangerous. When we enter into a relationship with God, who is God going to chasten? He will chasten his own children. You know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, if there was some smart aleck kid in, this, in the grocery store misbehaving, okay, and if his mother didn't do anything, my mother would take care of him, right? You know, you know, you would take care of those other children. If I misbehave and if I was out on the street and I, I, if I mouthed off to Mrs. Stanley or something like that, okay, if my mom didn't get me, one of the other neighborhood wives would or mothers would because they, you chasten those people. Well, when it comes to God, God is only going to chasten his children, the one that want to have a relationship with him. Because a father loves his child and will chasten his child to make sure that your child grows up to be the kind of person that they need to be. That's why we discipline our children. What father doesn't discipline his children? Okay, only a bad father. And God's not a bad father. So by entering into this relationship, by saying our father, just those two words, we've entered into a relationship with God that allows him the privilege and the right to be able to discipline us so that we become the kind of people that he wants us to become. However, here's the good news. In James 1.17, it talks about God being the gift giver, okay? Because fathers not only discipline their children, but fathers also give gifts to their children. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So our Father allows us to enter into a relationship that's unique. It allows, it gives God the opportunity to be able to discipline us because he loves us as his children, but he also, as a Father, gives us gifts. Let's go on to the next one. Hallowed be thy name. In praying this, we announce that we want God's name to be glorified. Now that sounds good, right? I mean, we want God's name to be glorified. Actually, let's look at the words first. Hallowed can be defined as something that is holy, something that is consecrated, okay? In fact, one of the things we have to understand about holy is holy is to be separate, to be set apart, okay? It's, it's kind of like your mother's china, okay? It came out at Christmas and Thanksgiving. It was separate, okay? It wasn't to be used for every day. It's the same thing with the name of God. The name of God is holy. It's something that is to be separate. It's not to be used for common. In fact, the opposite of holy is not unholy. The opposite of holy is common. It's common. It's common language. And that's what God has told us in the Ten Commandments, okay? Is keep my name holy, okay? Don't profane the name of the Lord your God. So by calling God, hallowed be your name, you're basically saying, I'm in agreement with what you've told us, that your name is holy. I'm going to keep it unique. It's how I'm going to pray with you. It's how I'm going to refer to you. I'm going to keep your name holy. But then all too often, God's name becomes common. It isn't so much. In fact, that's the issue with vulgar language. Did you know vulgar? The word vulgar actually means common. Did you know that? You've heard of the Latin vulgate? Heard that? Latin vulgate? That means common Latin. That's what it means. Common Latin. When the, when the church translated the Bible into the Latin vulgate, it was, Latin was the common language of the people. And they could have used a couple different kinds of Latin. They could have used a high ecclesiastical Latin, or they could have used a common, or even a base Latin. They used a common language that people could understand. Unfortunately, by the time they translated the Bible, most people were now speaking German and French and different languages, and nobody could read it. But the idea was there. It was the common language. The third commandment is recorded in Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, to not take the names, God's name in vain, and that means to not take it lightly. It isn't so much to swear, it's to take it lightly. It's to, it's to treat it as something common. It's not to be treated common. So when we say, hallowed be their name, we're entering into an agreement with Exodus 20, verse 7, with the commandment of God that hallowed be your name, that your name is to be holy. God tells us to stop using blasphemy and filthy language and to bless rather than curse. The Apostle Paul, by the way, wrote to the Christians in Colossae, he said this, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. That's Colossians 3.8. He also gave the instructions to the church in Rome, bless those who bless or persecute you, bless and do not curse. When we pray this prayer, we acknowledge that we know God's name is sacred. It's hallowed or holy. It's not to be used as a curse word. We, you can't pray, hallowed be your name, and then use the name of God or Jesus Christ as, as an explicative. You can't do it. Let's go on. The third petition. This is a longer one. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is most likely the most misunderstood part of the prayer. It really is. And it can be confusing sometimes. Um, so... It really should be giving us clarity, but instead sometimes it confuses. Let me tell you how it's misunderstood. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
as this is a prayer, it's a common misunderstanding that we are praying that earth ends up being a reflection of what's happening in heaven, right? That's kind of the idea, is that we want earth to be just like heaven. Well, as the next three weeks is going to tell you, there's things that don't happen in heaven that happen here. For example, men and women aren't given in marriage. They don't live as husband and wife in heaven. Well, that's the nature of how things are supposed to be done here. We're supposed to have husbands and wives, and it's good for one man to have a wife and a woman to have a husband. But on, on heaven, that's not how it's done. Uh, Jesus also said that there's no tears. No tears in heaven, so no crying's allowed here? Is that the idea? Men aren't supposed to cry, but maybe nobody's supposed to cry. Because no crying in heaven, so maybe there should be no crying here. I was watching Pastor David Jeremiah. He was talking about heaven. And he said, you know, as you know, as, as when, when we get to heaven, he says, we're all going to have different jobs. We're all going to have different jobs. But there are certain things that aren't going to be jobs in heaven. You don't need, like, you don't need bill collectors, right? I was a collector for a while, you know, knocking on doors. You know, hey, pay your bill. I used to do that for a short, very short time. It wasn't a very fun job. But there's no bill collectors in heaven. Well, here's the thing. David Jeremiah said there's no pastors in heaven, okay? There's no teachers in heaven. You don't need to teach the Word of God because everybody knows the Word of God. Now, he turned to his song leaders, okay, his ministry leaders, and said, you've got a job. Right? Because somebody's got to lead the worship. There's going to be singing. There's going to be joyful music in heaven. So those jobs are in heaven, but there's no jobs for people like, like me. Uh, so, so, so the key to understanding the third petition, that is, this petition, thy kingdom come that will be done, is actually in these words. Thy kingdom come. The word kingdom is a combination of two words. It's king and dominion. What we're saying is, there will be a time when Jesus, the King, will have dominion over this earth. There will be a time when the King returns. Praying the Lord's Prayer is actually praying a prayer of the return of Jesus Christ. That's what it's, that's what it's telling us to do. Thy kingdom come. At that time, thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Revelation tells us that heaven, the new Jerusalem, actually comes down out of heaven and comes down to earth. There'll be a time when God dwells with us. Emmanuel, he actually dwells with us, okay? That's a, that's a second coming of Jesus Christ. Our hearts have to be in the place where his kingdom reigns. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're actually are asking a pretty dangerous question. How can God's rule and ways fully come through my life now? while I wait for God's kingdom to truly come. What, Lord, what am I to do while I'm waiting? And if you're curious, that's what the New Testament is written for. Okay? If you're wondering what you should be doing, that's what the, starts with the book of Acts, and it goes all the way through the book of Revelation. Those are your instructions until Jesus returns. Remember the rich realm ruler? They came to Jesus and asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him, what every good, Jew, boy is Jew, uh, good Jewish boy knew, the Ten Commandments. In the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus looking at him, this is, this is the story of, the, of this boy that came to, came to Jesus. Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, then, then you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. 
That was what the young Jewish boy, this young ruler, couldn't do. You see, when you pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we're saying, what can I do to further your kingdom? I believe that in order to fully understand this petition, this third of seven, we need to understand that Jesus says, thy kingdom come, he's specifically referencing the end times. To pray thy kingdom come is to acknowledge that the world is not our home. This is not our home, we're just passing through. We have been purchased with a price as Paul declares, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. We are living each day with the expectation that Jesus is coming back. This event is expected, it's imminent, and we should be spending all of our time preparing for the time when Jesus returns. Let's go on. Fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. This is an easy one, right? I mean, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, how dangerous can this be? Well, <laughs> let's think about it, okay? This, this word day is in this, this, this phrase twice. Give us this day our daily bread. So this idea about today has something to do with it. It brings back to mind the way that the God provided for the people of Israel in the desert. Do you remember the story? Okay, the people left Israel. They left Israel and they were loaded down with silver. They had lots of clothes. They had lots of animals, they had lots of things, but they didn't have a lot of food to eat. Okay, they had a lot of things with them, but they didn't have enough food. So they cried out to Moses, complained to Moses, which is not a good thing to do, but they cried out to Moses and God sent them manna. And if you remember the instructions for the manna, is the manna would fall six days. And every single day they were to go out in the morning and they'd pick up the manna off the ground and they could do all kinds of things with it. They could boil it, they could do different things with it, they could make cakes out of it and stuff like that. If you ate it raw, it kind of tasted like a, like, a, like a honey rice crispy of some kind, you know. It was a little sweet, it said, kind of like, like a rice cake um, with a little bit of honey to it. So you could eat it raw as well. But you couldn't take more than you needed, only for the day. If you took more than you needed, it would spoil overnight. You had to go out every single day and get it again. God wanted the people of Israel to understand that they needed to depend on Him every day. Not just today, but every single day. The only day that they could collect more than one day was the, the sixth day, because then you had the seventh. You had the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. So on Friday, they could go and collect twice as much because on Saturday was the Sabbath and they would have enough for two days. So they didn't have to collect for two days. That's God's provision for our lives as well. He wants us to depend on Him. He wants us to depend on Him completely. There's actually three things that this, that this Give Us This Day, Our Daily Bread talks about. The first one is stewardship, okay? It's the stewardship of the things that we have. Um, if you notice the words give us, this is acknowledging a simple fact, that it's not us who generates our daily bread, it is God's. The idea says, the idea of stewardship is that everything we have belongs to God. In fact, when we take offerings in churches, when we receive offerings in churches, is the way it's said, we are giving back to God. We're just giving back to Him what is already His. So He's the provider of all things. So the idea of give us this daily bread speaks of stewardship. The next thing it speaks of is dependence, the dependence on God. This is our particular petition that we know that God is our provider. So we're depending on Him today. I, upstairs, I talked a little bit about the church of Laodicea, where Jesus t tells them that they are, uh, they think that they're wealthy, but actually they're miserable and wretched and poor, because they seem like they've had everything they needed, but they were no longer depending on God. 
So this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, allows us to enter into the relationship that we're depending on God today. The third part about this is contentment. The Bible says that, that, God, that, that uh, contentment with godliness is great gain. Contentment with godliness is great gain. We need to be content with what we have. It's, it's when our eyes start wandering, when we start realizing what our neighbors have, when we wonder why we can't be as well off as somebody else that causes frustrations in our life. God will provide all of the things that you need. You just need to depend on God. God will give you the ability to get everything in your life that He wants for you. Um, the Bible says we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. I love this verse. Having food and clothing with these, Paul says, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, listen to this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts that which drown men and women in destruction and perdition. Bible says in verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Many sorrows. So, let's go on. The fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer. It says, and forgive us our trespasses. This is the part of the Lord's Prayer that many has many different versions, okay? Some say, forgive us our trespasses. Some say, forgive us our debts. Some say, forgive us our sins. All the words are similar. And they all make the same kind of sense. The idea is this, is that we come to God as sinners, as people that are receiving forgiveness from the Lord. And what the Bible is telling us very clearly, it tells us often, over and over again, that if, we're, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. But we have to understand that we're sinners. So by praying the Lord's Prayer, at least we're putting ourselves in a position, a position that we're understanding that we are in need of forgiveness. We fall short of the perfect plan of God. It's important to ask God for forgiveness. Sin separates us from God, becomes a barrier to our fellowship with Him, and even causes us to lose the joy of our salvation. That's what Isaiah 59.2 says. It says, your iniquities have become a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. So when we sin and we don't come to God, we separate ourselves from the loving God. The God that we just called Father is now being separated from us because we don't come to Him for forgiveness. Let's go on to the next petition. Number six out of seven. As we forgive those who trespass against us. Now here's the thing. Of course, we want God to forgive us. But forgiving others is another matter, right? Remember just a few weeks ago we had the series called The Grudge. Mm -hmm. And the idea is this, is that so many people feel they're justified in holding a grudge against somebody else. They, they, they fail to forgive somebody else for some infraction, some hurt, some penalty, some way that they've sinned, created a debt, or trespassed against them. And they feel justified in being able to hold that grudge. But God takes forgiveness very seriously. Um, just, just last week at the uh, 10 o'clock uh, uh, service, I taught, about, I taught about the parable of the unforgiving, service, uh, on the unforgiving servant. Remember that one? There was a man that, that it was a king that was going to uh, uh, have account, take accounts of all of his different servants. And one of the servants that came to him owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, we don't understand a talent, but 10,000 talents is a talent of gold. I mean, a talent of gold is, is heavy weight. It's a lot of weight. It takes camels 
to carry talents of gold. So you've got all of this gold, it's something like millions of dollars. And the man says, uh, just give me some time and I'll repay you. Well, enough time is not enough for this man to repay him, but the master forgave the servant of the debt. But then shortly thereafter, you remember the story, that same servant goes out and finds one of his fellow servants that owes him just a few denarii, just a few days wages, and takes him by the throat and starts strangling him and saying, pay me what you owe me. And the, the man had asked for the same thing. Basically said, just give me some time and I'll repay you. But he threw him in prison instead. Well, the friends around him taught, brought it back to the king and they said, this guy's not treating others like you treated him. The Bible makes it very, very clear that we need to be able to be willing to forgive. As we forgive those who trespass against us, we're putting ourselves in agreement with the Bible, what the Bible says, that not only are we asking for forgiveness, but we are in agreement that we will forgive those that sin, that trespass, that have a debt that's owed to us. Let's finish up. Number seven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, here's the thing. We know that God actually doesn't lead anybody in temptation. Uh, James 1.13 says that God does not tempt us to sin. If God does tempt us to sin, he would be acting contrary to his holy nature. In fact, this is a really good example of how we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Anytime we have something in the Bible we read that seems a little strange, okay, that seems a little different, you always find what is very, very clear in Scripture to interpret those things that are a little fuzzy. We always use what's clear to interpret what's fuzzy. So what Scripture is actually telling us here is basically is that, is that just as we are good parents and we're going to make sure that our children don't visit with friends that are going to cause them trouble, aren't watching the television programs, that the little eyes shouldn't be watching, okay? That have good company that are going to the very best schools. We want God to do the same thing with us. As a loving father, we want God to lead us into the areas so that we can be exactly who God wants us to be. And that's what this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just remember some of those people we call, that are people we call friends, even family. Those TV shows and movies are the hits. Those popular shows, those shows that entertain us. Those things that, that we watch that we want, are asking God to keep us away from are the things that we really want. I mean, they really are. I mean, when my mom wouldn't let me watch a certain show or my wife won't let me watch a certain show, sometimes those are the shows that I want to watch. I mean, are you kidding? I've been waiting for HBO to come on all week long. I've been waiting for this. You're telling me I can't watch it. But our fathers, our parents, even our spouses, want the very best for us. And by praying this prayer, what we're doing is we're entering into an agreement that says, okay, God, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn the channel. I'm going to give you the opportunity to remove me from the people that don't want the best for me. That'll lead me into the places that you don't want me to go. Seven petitions. All part of the Lord's Prayer. All much more effective and much more dangerous than really you ever thought. I can guarantee you, you're never going to pray this prayer quite the same anymore. Mm -hmm. This isn't a prayer that we just recite. This is a prayer that we pray from the heart. Remember when you're praying, when you're calling on God, aren't you glad you're not calling on Hakadash Barakhu? Hu, okay? Blessed is he who has the name. Blessed be him. You're calling on your father. 
to give us enough to provide for our needs, but not too much that we forget to our source. We acknowledge that we continue to sin, and just as we pray for forgiveness, we also pray that we would be forgiving as well. We pray that the loving Father would keep us from those things, those people, those places that would lead us to stray from the path that God wants for us. In the end, we acknowledge our weakness and our total dependence on, with God's help, we pray that God's kingdom would come, the final victory, victory would be won, and that heaven and earth would be won. Now, the Lord's Prayer would never be finished without this. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the Lord's Prayer. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus taught his apostles, his disciples, how to pray. Father, when we pray this prayer, this model prayer, would you allow our hearts to understand what we're truly praying? Would you allow us to enter in that relationship with you that we can call you Father? Seniors, a ministry of faith dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.